You are now listening to the new voice of reason, Down the Middle, a political podcast with Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation, a podcast about politics, current events, and culture through a lens of moderation, measuredness, and common ground. So sit back and prepare yourself for two guys who prefer intermittent, moderate change over revolution. Two guys who believe diversity of thought is our greatest strength. Are you prepared? Okay, here are your hosts, Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer. All right, welcome back, listeners, to the podcast. It's episode 23, So Electorally Collegial. Uh, with me, as always, we got Rob the Riz Lifer. How you guys and, doing? Wait, hold on one second. You ready? Listen, yeah. listen. That's me opening uh, my beer because I'm gonna need. Sounds. I'm gonna need one for this for this episode. <laughs> yeah. We got a yeah. lot to get to, Jay. We got. Oh, we're, already, we're already starting. We got a lot to get to. All right. Well, let's dive right in. You know, I mean, who's who's waiting? The, the truth of the matter is, there's no time for pleasantries today. Let's go right in to to the first thing on our list. Honest Abe's housekeeping hangout. When he growed up, this tiny babe, folks all called him Honest Abe. Abraham, Abraham. All right, Jay. Um, as you guys know, we have products. We have a Discord. Jay, just remind our listeners quickly about what those two things are about. Uh, it's Christmas time. You guys are thinking about gifts for your loved one. What better gift than to remind them about moderate change in this country buy them a mug buy them a t-shirt buy them a sweatshirt buy them a tank top uh, buy them a baby onesie if they're babies lots of new kids going around uh, pandemic time so check out our products and ask us any question you want on our discord anything at all from theology to politics to uh you know what the weather's like in la go ahead ask away we will answer them on the air and that's uh that's that about does it for products and discord Anyone who's engaged with us via Discord knows that we are of our word and we get to everyone. So anyone who asks a question, we always eventually get to their question or their comment. It doesn't even have to be a question, just a comment. Or you yeah. could just say, you know, something derogatory to it. We'll, 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 we'll even get to address it. that. We'll get sure. to it. Yes. Um, so another thing that some people have been, uh, been asking me is, how come sometimes your episodes are on Thursday and sometimes they're on Friday? What gives with that? It's confusing. Yeesh. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, a bunch of complainers out there. I mean, have Seriously. A life. We have pretty much settled into this Thursday routine. You mm-hmm. know, we usually record on Wednesday, but there are extenuating circumstances. Justin and I do have jobs still. We have uh, families. Uh, you know, I got two little kids and things come yeah. up. Things happen. And, uh, election right. happened too. Yes, elections happen, you know, things happen. So sometimes you'll see our episodes on Friday. We usually try to warn you about that. Maybe yeah. one of these one of these days you'll see it on a Wednesday because there was some other Whoa. thing we had to do on Wednesday and couldn't record that day. We'll always keep you posted, but that's really, there's really no, uh, you know, nothing crazy special to, to tell you about there. It's just, it is what it is kind of thing, right, Jay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, calm down. Yes, exactly. So uh, one more thing, I want to scold our listeners for still failing to contribute to our discussion on free speech and the internet from uh, prior to the election. You might remember that. What episode was that? What number? I think it was two episodes ago, so maybe 21, I believe. I think so. I think you're right. Yeah, episode 21. If you haven't listened to that, you should go back and listen to it again. Yeah, this is an important uh, topic, people. This topic is gaining steam. It's something that we really need to discuss. We want it. Now, we have heard from one person and uh, we are going to address her comments in, in our next segment. But uh, we want to hear from more of you people. We really want to. I am legitimately curious what the general 
public thinks about this whole mm-hmm. situation and what's going on with uh, Twitter and Facebook sort of cracking down on speech that um, they find, you know, inappropriate or whatever, yeah. right wing craziness. You know, there's a <laughs> lot of that going on. So anyway, we want to hear more from you. Please, please contribute. Send us an email. Get on the Discord, whatever. Lastly here, next week is Thanksgiving. So we are um, taking the week off. We're taking the next week uh, to give thanks. But maybe, just maybe, if you're all nice and do nothing crazy, Jay will post one of his special edition Buzz Histories on the history of Thanksgiving. Wow, I love that. Right, that would be something yeah, really good cool. Topic, and, yeah. Right, and maybe we'll even post one of the interviews that we've banked for a little bit. We have a few interviews in the bank that we yeah. uh, are sort of hanging on to for a rainy day. Who knows? Uh, but either way, uh, celebrate Thanksgiving with your immediate family, but please remember to be as safe as possible. I don't want to get blamed and people be like, oh, Rob from down the middle told me to go out and celebrate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, no. don't travel if you don't have to. Wear a mask, yes. socially distance, and, you know, Zoom Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. It's one year, people. We're going to have a vaccine. Everything's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Everything looks like it's headed in a good direction. You know, Zoom for a year. It'll be okay. Zoom for one year. Not a big deal. And don't buy the entire turkey. Just buy the turkey breast. Yeah. That way you don't feel like so much of it's going to, to waste. Now, I'm a dark meat guy, personally. But, uh, you know, one year, whatever. I'll eat, I'll eat light I pegged you year. for that. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Jay, no more wasting time. Let us, let's go on to our fa- favorite segment, your favorite segment, We Care A Lot. We Care A Lot! We Care A Lot! All right, Jay, so guess what? What? You got a question. What? Come on. Yes, yes. This is this is something. I know. Wow. We, I'm we need so to, excited. When COVID's over, we're gonna celebrate. Yeah. yeah. The one question I got. <laughs> okay, so this is I think you've gotten one or two before, but uh but this this one was was really interesting and I have some things to say about this too. I bet but, you uh, do. But of course you uh I'll let you respond first since it was directed towards you. Great. The question was this. Uh, so this is from Everything is Dumb, our favorite uh oh, what a great Discord name. handle. Right. Bless you. Justin, I believe everything is dumb so uh everything is dumb we don't know if this is a he or she said uh really enjoyed riz's explanation on what a liberal against leftism is thank you i appreciate that Uh, i definitely fall in the same category he or she says one thing he didn't really talk about though meaning me uh, is that being a liberal to me also means that because we typically reject the religious community's contention that everything is God's plan, we put faith in our government and our citizens to fix the problems that are taking place on earth. Mm -hmm. Justin, do you believe that being a person of faith inhibits one's desire to address problems like climate change since a religious person would likely believe God has a plan for that? Thanks. All right. Wow. This is a I, I, this is a great question. Yeah. Uh, I've heard it a lot, and mm-hmm. uh, I have an answer. Mm-hmm. So the God has a plan for that is what I like to call Christianese. It's a churchism or a colloquialism of the Christian community that is oftentimes misrepresented or mistranslated from Scripture. This particular quote isn't even in the Bible as such, and uh, as is the same for a great many uh, Christianese terms. So it's said in Jeremiah 29, 11, that's Old Testament, Riz, so you're good here. Yeah. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That's speaking to a personal relationship with God and his call on each of our lives individually. Not exactly what you've asked me here, but it's related. 
What you're speaking to in your question is essentially a lazy man's response to life. I mean, why bother to do anything if God always has a plan and doesn't matter what we do? Additionally, blaming God for our own mistakes is not an alley you want to walk down. Now, if one reads the Bible, they will see that God's plan for us is right on the page. And they'll also see that a very large part of that, if not all of that, is being an active and responsible member in the world, especially when it comes to stewarding his creation well. What I mean by that is simply taking care of the planet. Now, God has endowed us with free will, and so we are free to do good or to do harm as much as we so choose. And if you read the Bible, you will see that our typical thrust is to the latter. Yet we are redeemed by God over and over, culminating in the sacrifice of his son. And I'll leave that there because this isn't a theology podcast, but I'm always available and happy to discuss that over Discord or anywhere. (laughs) My point is this in answer to your question. We are called to live lives of purpose, not laziness, and we are called to fortify the planet. In Genesis 1.28, again, more Old Testament for the Riz, Mm -hmm. it says, Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That right there, people, is a call directly from God to be stewards to more than just ourselves, to care for every living thing on this planet. And that absolutely includes problems like climate change, which would and has created problems for habitats and who knows how many species. But that also means that the destruction of the Amazon rainforest and the contribution that this has to something like global warming is just as important to address as the human killing off of species like whales, sharks, and the poaching of white rhinos, for example. All of creation is under our stewardship, and we are called to care for all living things and the creation that was handed over to us. Very, very good, Jay. You know, it actually makes me feel warm inside to know that there are religious people that interpret the Bible the way it was written, like you do. And yep. uh, I really like it because I'll be honest with you. And yep. um, this is maybe a little bit personal, but uh, who cares? You know, I, 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 used, I used to be very anti-religion. You know, yep. I, I, I've thought basically since I was a teenager that all religion was a net negative for society. Mm-hmm. And uh, the point that this listener brought up here is one of the main reasons for why I felt this way. I agree. In my, right. Yeah. In, in my mind, and I think I've, I've talked to you about this, mm-hmm. religion was sort of a giant worldwide excuse to not put energy into making things better on Earth yeah. because the whole point was that we'd all be with God sometimes day anyway, right? So I sort of, I I related to this question Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. And the denial or indifference to things like climate change uh, were kind of the smoking gun for me because I have indeed heard evangelical Christians as well as Orthodox Jews Mm -hmm. alike say things like humans don't control the climate, God does. Like that is something you will read on a Fox News, uh, you know, uh, comments page any any day, right? Mm -hmm. And when one puts their life completely into God's hands, it's hard to argue that this wouldn't have any effect on one's desire to improve on things that religion tells us is out of our control. Mm -hmm. But I think what you're saying is that religion doesn't tell us it's out of our control. Certainly not. It's interpreted that way, right? Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, that's usually an interpretation of an interpretation that's gotten mistranslated. Right. I mean, if you go read scripture and you Mm -hmm. read pretty much any translation, you will get out of it what I just told you. Right. And, you know, we've had conversations about this, you and I, and, and and that has influenced the way I feel about this specific question and actually about religion in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've always felt that not having faith in a higher power is a luxury for someone who is fortunate enough to have an extremely fortunate life. And even when times have been tough in my life, it has never been lost on me that I am one of the few fortunate souls in the world, generally speaking. Like, I, I know a lot of people would say that this is a sort of Pollyannic view on life. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this conversation and this debate with my mother all the time, but right. it's how I feel. You know, sure. the fact that my family would never 
have to worry about going a single day without food or shelter makes us relatively, in comparison to everyone on Earth, some Mm -hmm. of the most fortunate people on the face of the planet. Absolutely. So not having faith in a higher power works for me. Uh, And at this point in my life, I have no desire to change that. However, in sort of seeking a different perspective on religion, I started reading a lot of books and articles that explored the changes that have happened in our society as we have become a less religious community. And I will say that it's sort of hard to argue that those changes have been positive. Yeah. I mean, th- this is a controversial controversial thing to say sure. on the mm-hmm. left, but the fact is that access to, let's say, guns, for instance, mm-hmm. was a whole lot easier in the 1950s and 60s, especially in the South, and school shootings and these sort of mass, mass casualty incidents that have become an everyday part of American life were almost unheard of back then. Yeah, for sure. So for all of you out there who are supporters of heavy gun regulation, for instance, my personal opinion, based on research I've done, is that it's not the gun that are the problem, but rather an absence an, an absence of deeper meaning mm. in people's lives that used to come from faith in God. That's and right. it's not just the specific faith that I'm referring to, but also everything surrounding the faith-based community, up to and including spending every Sunday afternoon at grandma's house. Yeah, the, the ethic and value that comes from that. Right, exactly. And that might sound silly, like what does grandma's house have to do with it? But it was the idea that you went to church or you went to synagogue and then the kids were made to have to in uh, to to be surrounded by their extended family, family and, and yeah, the values that come yeah. right exactly mm-hmm, absolutely so as these sort of values have diminished i think a certain percentage of people in the west have filled the void where god used to reside mm-hmm. with things that are a lot less positive such as politics mm-hmm. you know and a, as we've talked about on the show before jay you know far left politics is almost a form of religion and has sort of taken the place of religion in a lot of cases right so it's an idolatry exactly it's an idolatry so anyway bottom line is that I no longer agree with the contention that, one, religion is a net negative for society, although I still happily choose for myself and my family to be agnostic. And two, that being from a faith-based community inhibits one's desire to improve life in the here and now. That's all I have to say about that. Well, thanks. I I think it's amazing that you've uh, been able to open your mind to other possibilities. Not everyone is, is that willing to do so. Um, And I would say that in my estimation and in my experience, when you find something that makes sense because of a biblical ethic or because of a a theological virtue, Mm -hmm. to me, that sort of points to to God's plan. It points to exactly what we're talking about. There's a reason these things make sense, and there's a guidebook to that, and it is the Bible. And that's, you know, where I come from in a lot of these kinds of uh, discussions. You know, I I used to watch like, um, like a special on HBO about like jail. And you'd you'd always see, you know, there's sort of that cliche guy who's like, I found Jesus in here, you know? And you think to yourself, like, dude, like if I was in jail, I'd probably find Jesus too, right? (laughs) Luckily, I I have such a fortunate life that I don't need to. (laughs) You know what I mean? You know, I think my my entire sort of outlook on this this topic has changed over the last five years or so as I've really done some research and realized that the people who are, you know, I think I used to sort of snidely kind of look down on the religious community as being so the people I. that were sort of rubes. Yeah, right. for exactly. sure. Yeah. Non-sophisticates, mm-hmm. you know? And and that has really changed. I really have changed my opinion on that. So Excellent. there you go. All right. Okay. We have a, a few more things we to do. get to uh, here. Uh, yeah. Moving on, we got a couple uh, questions or comments from people that, uh, you know, they message us privately. Some some of these people are friends, some of these people that are acquaintances, some people yep. we haven't talked to since high school. And th- so every now and again, they'll message us uh, randomly and, and we'll uh, discuss them on the show. Right. So... 
A private message from a friend of the pod. Uh, had a long discussion with my husband last night about the social media question. Finally, we have yes, someone yes, talking so about this. Someone, someone doing this. Fine. Yep. Uh, his take was that it took years for it to evolve or devolve into this. So it will then take years to get out of it. He thinks critical reasoning needs to be better taught in schools and with a focus specifically on social media and how to do your own fact checking. Very good. Okay. So to be honest, I think this is pretty rational. I mean, the fact is that there is no such thing as alternative facts or your truth. There is Mm -hmm. only the facts and the truth, right? Amen. Right. But our First Amendment does afford everyone, even stupid people and fraudsters and grifters and the scum of the earth, to say and believe whatever they want to. But with increasingly easy access to the minds of those people and the way in which they've formed communities that sort of echo chamber one another and make their beliefs and their lies seem just as legitimate over the internet as a reliable source of information, we need to figure out how to put a much stronger emphasis on how not to be gullible, basically. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like how the the IRS had to train people to know when they're getting scammed. So you've probably seen those commercials where it says like, the IRS will never ask for your social security Mm -hmm. number. The IRS will never call you directly. We will always send you like, like the official mailings, right? Exactly. You know, yeah. and the purpose of this is so that if someone calls claiming to be an IRS agent and asking for your social security number, you know it's a scam and you hang up. Yeah, we got a lot of those in Boca Raton, Florida, because a lot of old people down there. We still get these calls every day, and it's amazing to me that people fall for it, but they do, you know? So so perhaps better than going down the rabbit hole of trying to censor political propaganda on either side of the political Mm -hmm. aisle, maybe people need to be taught about red flags and how to do your own research. So, for instance, just to give one example here, if your friend posts something from ChristianWorldNews.com that claims the Democrats in Congress are involved in nightly satanic rituals, you instinctively go through a checklist in your head. Okay, what is Christian World News? Who runs it? Do they have a history of extremely partisan political activity? Where is the company headquartered out of? Is it in an office or in somebody's bedroom? How is the company funded, etc.? Because the inherent problem that the internet has brought us is the fact that Christian World News on Internet Explorer or Chrome or whatever browser you may use looks just as legitimate oftentimes as the Washington Post. So, I mean, look, there's an old poker saying that goes, if you can't spot the sucker in the first half hour at the table, then you are the sucker. (laughs) And uh, I I took a poker class once during my gambling days, my younger days, and uh, the entire first part of the class was dedicated to spotting the sucker. That's sort of like the poker thing, right? And I, I think perhaps our education system needs to put more emphasis on that, right? Like more emphasis on street smarts and not being an idiot, basically. Mm -hmm. Jay, you agree? I completely agree. And we saw this just today, by, uh, for example, with Facebook and the Lord's Prayer. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw this whole thing about uh, the Facebook has not allowed the Lord's Prayer uh, onto their sites and they're taking it down. I literally took 30 seconds to type it into Google. And and, and of course, it comes up immediately fact-check false. So I love the idea of teaching better critical reasoning in school. It speaks to the understanding of a loss of a loss of reasoning that's happening, personal responsibility, a loss of liberal studies in lieu yeah. of like trade schools or right. more focused education. I mean, there's precedent for this that goes back to the ancient Greeks in yeah. understanding philosophy, reasoning, motivation, psychology. Right. These things were passed down in education and learning for the sake of itself. We've replaced this with like what I would call careerism, which is important as well, considering we live in a capitalistic system. Yeah. Uh, but a better balance could perhaps be struck here. So I'm totally yeah. into this and I like the suggestion. 
Yeah, very, very good. Yeah, I mean, you know, and we have these, it, sh- it should be also be noted that we have these fact-checking sites like PolitiFact and Snopes yeah. that, that do USA a pretty Today good job. It. Right, they, they, yeah. a lot of them do it. The problem is they have been politicized. I know. And you'll hear people uh, all over the political spectrum say, you know, there's left-wing activists that work at those sites, mm-hmm. so you can't trust them. And and so I think, yeah, we, we, we need a better system designed to teach kids like I said, how not to be gullible and to do their own research and critically think a little bit because it just seems like there are a lot of people who just take everything they read at face value. You know, so yeah, it's, I it's think amazing. some of this is generational. I think it'll it'll yeah. it'll decrease with time. Maybe. I think that the younger generation is more they're used to having to question things that they read on the internet. I think a lot of the the, the boomer generation, for example. Yeah they this is kind of new and foreign to them and so they see something they post it they see something they post it and this is a lot of people we're talking about yeah who just sort of knee jerk and that that creates a lot of confusion and i think that's what we're seeing here very very true all right let's move on there was one more from the same uh this the same listener yeah same friend of the pod uh said i also asked my husband about covid because when Rob said, if Biden wins and puts in a mask mandate, et cetera, my ears perked up. That's the last thing I would want. My husband's suggestion was that we go back to the, quote, don't overwhelm the hospitals, end quote, philosophy. Pack in resources for mobile hospitals or more facilities, more machines, et cetera, into the hot spots, and then ease restrictions and disperse patients to different areas if one spot is too congested. Just seems like we're all going to get it eventually and hunkering down, at least at this point, when you've already given the mouse the cookie of lighter restrictions, so to speak. Love that. Uh, yeah. I, to give a mouse a cookie is a great uh, analogy. <laughs> uh, will not move us forward. Right. So, you know, when I said mask mandate, I honestly wasn't thinking a true mandate because the president actually doesn't have the constitutional authority to impose a mandate on all 50 states. That has to come from the state government. Mm -hmm. But with that said, I am a big listen to the experts kind of guy. You know, I have a a whole lot more confidence in a Biden administration's desire to bring on the right team in regard to medicine and science than I do with the Trump administration. That's just how I feel, okay? And I know a lot of people on the right were very upset with like Anthony Fauci, for instance, because the sort of mantra you would hear is, you know, who elected Anthony Fauci? And, and, and I get that. I really do. I mean, the, the truth is that we elect politicians to enact policy, not doctors or scientists. So I think there's a concern that people like Fauci are only interested in the sort of narrow scope of the repercussions of the virus and not necessarily thinking about the repercussions of a shutdown economy or school districts, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, the cliche we keep hearing at this point is we can't let the cure be worse than the virus. You hear yeah. Trump say that, but you hear a lot of people say that, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of people who feel the scientific community doesn't think that way. They don't think about what this is doing to people's jobs. They only think about the most effective way to stop the virus, which Mm -hmm. is their job. So bottom line is that there has to be a balance. And to me, the balance is mass because we have heard now virtually from, you know, virtually every respected doctor in the conversation that we could have saved ourselves a ton of economic hardship had we just worn the mass. Yeah. And even the CDC just said recently, it doesn't just protect the other people, it protects the wearer. Right, I mean, it's exactly. Incredibly you know, important. J- Justin and I were talking about this last weekend. We went out to dinner with one of our friends. Social distance, of course. It was an out uh, outdoor as the, as they are in L.A. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, we were talking about how you know those so called freedom fighters who think it's an infringement of their constitutional right to have to wear a mask. I know that Jay and I both want to give the proverbial middle finger to those people because because what about my freedom to not die? And it, yeah. it, it just it enrages me beyond no end. Mm-hmm. So wear the mask when 
whenever you go out until we get the vaccines, suck it the hell up and deal. That's what I say. And, you know, but I, you know, I do agree that there is so much COVID fatigue right now. You know, I just yeah. miss eating in restaurants, not on the street. I'm sick sure. of eating on the street. Yeah, I want to go know? to a movie so badly. I know, seriously. My wife was just talking about that. Like, we yeah. ha- I haven't been to a movie in a year. You know, I, I miss going to concerts. You know, that was a sure. big part of, of life. That was an exciting part of life. I, I, I actually, you know what's funny? I actually just miss giving my friends a hug when I see them. Yeah. You know, know. simple things like that. I agree. It, it, it gets exhausting to live mm-hmm. like this. And 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 I, I really do think there's a pretty bright light at the end of the tunnel right now yeah. with these vaccines. Everything looks really good. So let's just wait it out a few more months. We can do it. Yeah, I mean, in terms of this question, I don't love this seems like we're all going to get it anyway thought process. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's dangerous considering yeah. the fact that we still don't understand the long-term implications of the virus. Right. There's evidence to the idea that there are long-term issues, and so I don't love the uh, adoption of that idea. Right. Um, yeah. we should see mentality. It, yeah, idea, I mean, we should yeah. seek to be as safe as humanly possible, contain the virus as much as we can until we can distribute a vaccine, which, guys, like, it's around the corner. I know right. it may not seem like March is around the corner, but this whole thing was done at light speed. And I do yeah. want to take a second to highlight something while we're on the subject. Mm-hmm. We give credit where credit is due on this podcast. And we don't give President Trump a lot of credit. And no. he's bungled so much of this pandemic response. And we've gotten into it on countless occasions. So yeah. with that being said, I think Operation Warp Speed, which is a Trump administration program to engage and fund the private sector to speed up the discovery of a vaccine, I dare say one he was far more involved in than the Israel Accords, yeah. We, you know, that we've praised him for is is so far, in my opinion, a massive success. It's netted at least one vaccine in less than a year by a company called Moderna. Yeah. And I don't believe that Pfizer was involved in the program, but a vaccine that seems to be incredibly effective and much easier to transport and store than the Pfizer vaccine, which requires a very specific cold storage. Yeah. This is because of the president's belief in our private sector and in capitalism to innovate. So let's everyone say it with me. Yay, capitalism. But point is, is like, it's around the corner and it's amazing. And I think it's an incredible program. It's something to highlight. And we don't have to wait that long for a freaking vaccine. And I will, uh, as much as you know how much I, I, I despise Trump and his administration, I will buy that for a dollar. I will, I, yeah. I, I, will, I will take that and give him credit for this. Uh, I do wish, however, um, I think it was, uh, there was some pundit who said this and I thought, yeah, that's actually, I agree with this. I wish he could have applied the Operation Warp Speed mentality in the beginning to getting everyone tested and traced yeah. and it, had else. we caught right ha, ha, had it been done in the beginning on that end because i do feel like the operation warp speed was sort of like when the shit already hit the fan and it Perhaps, was sort yeah. of sort mm-hmm. of too late and like oh well we have to cover our tracks here and uh sure you I, know. I mean i also think he was dead set on finding a cure for the virus where he should have been focused on containing the virus yeah, first right uh you know he's he he's not uh an incredibly you know complicated thinker and so right, for yeah, him right. it was like virus cure instead of virus right. what are the steps in between and then we right. can also figure out a cure so you know it, it's very amazing people are saying it's the yeah. best cure ever yeah, yeah. So, not a lot of complexity to that. Anyway, now we just got to get people to take the freaking vaccine. That's what I'm worried about. But that's well, a topic for another day. I'm taking it. You're taking it. So I whatever. Everyone else can do line. what they want. Yeah. First in line. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Jay, let's move on because we have a new segment today. This is the first new segment. Very exciting. Of season two. New segment alert. And uh, this segment is called Turn on the News.
Okay. So we're officially biting the bullet here and succumbing to the fact that the front of this podcast is always going to have to update you guys on the news of the week. Finally, you're welcome. Right, exactly. At least as long as Donald Trump is alive. Yeah, right? that's right. Okay. Because <laughs> after that, presumably, there's never going to be news anymore. It's just going to be weather. We're just yeah, talking right. about the weather for an hour. <laughs> Sounds yeah. great to me. Right, exactly. <laughs> but what you can expect from a rundown of the news with the Down the Middle Squad is a fearless devotion to calling it like it is, balls and strikes, yep. and refusing to engage in the sort of partisan hackery you are likely accustomed to from your major news networks. Justin is a conservative who is clearly not scared to call out the Republican Party when he thinks they're doing something wrong. And I am a liberal who clearly has no problem slamming the Democratic Party. I'm going to do it a lot in this episode. Yep. So uh, here we go, Jay. Let's, Let's go, go right into it. So, all righty. Uh, election updates. Well, Trump hasn't conceded yet, as you may have heard, and things have gotten bat crazier with every <laughs> passing day. Uh, we'll go over some of the stuff Trump and his cronies have been saying in a minute. But before we get there, Jay, get us up to speed with the pending lawsuits. Okay, so we have some missing votes happening. And look, we have never said that errors in the process didn't exist entirely. We have only and continue to say that these instances are minimal and do not affect the outcome of an election. That remains to be true so far in this election. Mm -hmm. The vote count discrepancies we are seeing in Georgia, for example, in Fayette County and Floyd County during the hand recount exist. We're not denying that but they are also not shifting the outcome of this election. Yep. What I'm guessing is that percentage that Clay quoted on our voter fraud episode will maintain its integrity. And what I'm saying is that the instances of fraud and or miscounts is relative to the number of votes cast. So you have in this election a historic number of votes cast. The instances of these issues will rise as well, but always in relationship to each other. And by the way, while you're only hearing about instances where this has affected the Republicans, this is not a partisan issue, people. It impacts both sides. Absolutely. So we have new lawsuits filed in Nevada challenging the election results under a state law that lets candidates contest an election based on fraudulent voting. Filing a document just last night, Republicans asked a state court in Carson City to declare, just declare President Trump the winner of Nevada's six presidential electors or, you know, annul the election entirely. <laughs> the document that was filed while insinuating evidence provided none in what is becoming a very consistent narrative among these cases. They say, oh, we're going to give you this evidence. Don't you worry. It'll be there. And then they can't they can't drum up any. So the Trump campaign's lawyers dropped their lawsuit seeking a review of ballots in Arizona based on alleged voter confusion over ballots not being counted due to overvotes. The lawsuit was seeking a hand review of any ballots flagged by the machine as overvotes. But as I mentioned, this case was dropped after a hearing last Thursday, after which Corey Langhofer, a lawyer for the Trump campaign, said, quote, since the close of yesterday's hearing, the tabulation of votes statewide has rendered unnecessary a judicial ruling as to the presidential electors. Prior to this, the judge had thrown out paper and electronic affidavits that the Trump campaign collected from voters after Langhofer acknowledged that some of the forms were, quote, spam and not legitimate voters. The judge, <laughs> after some harsh words, essentially threw everything out and that was the end of the day. So the campaign had also dropped cases from voters in Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania just two days ago. These cases all promised, quote, expert reports that would reveal fraud related to absentee ballots, all dropped. During a five-hour hearing in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, 
U.S. District Judge Matthew Brand set through assertions without evidence voiced by none other than Rudy Giuliani himself, who hasn't entered a courtroom as a registered lawyer since the 1990s. Now, pause for a second there. That, that <laughs> is so funny. He hasn't entered a court courtroom since the 1990s. Yeah. If this was a really serious thing, don't you think you could get a more current lawyer to I mean, take you'd think, this on? I think, I think the problem is they can't find anyone who's willing to no, take these cases because everyone up, so knows like, it's complete crap. I want to know. Yeah. I want to be on that call. All right, call <laughs> Rudy. And I want <laughs> Everybody's like, but I haven't been in a courtroom since 1992. Rudy, you're in. He's probably like jumped off the (laughs) bench. That's exactly what we wanted. (laughs) Yeah. So Democratic leaders in cities nationwide, uh, they're saying basically that they used mail-in ballots to rig the election, right? And the remedy that Giuliani proposed, much like the Nevada case, was to bar Pennsylvania from certifying its vote tally entirely. (laughs) Bran answered with the following. Quote, this is the judge. At bottom, you're asking this court to invalidate some 6.8 million votes, thereby disenfranchising every single voter in the Commonwealth. Can you tell me how this result could possibly be justified? Bran indicated that he did not intend to rule immediately. He looks to be aiming towards a decision come Friday. Now, one of Giuliani's main points of contention was based on reports from campaign monitors who say they were prevented from meaningfully monitoring the counting of votes in Democratic-leaning counties, including Philadelphia. However, As that argument was being voiced by Giuliani, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court issued a ruling undercutting it. In a 5-2 decision, the state's justices ruled that the city had complied with state laws that require only that partisan monitors be granted access to counting rooms. The statute does not say anything about how closely they may observe the actual ballots being tallied. The conservative Chief Justice Thomas G. Saylor dissented, but included in his dissent that the matter was moot due to the counting in the states being essentially completed, and he balked at the Trump campaign's proposed solution to the issue. He wrote, quote, Short of demonstrated fraud, the notion that presumptively valid ballots cast by the Pennsylvania electorate would be disregarded based on isolated procedural irregularities, thus disenfranchising potentially thousands of voters, is misguided. Slow clap for checks and balances. All right. Good now, job. look, I mean, this is great stuff. It's our democracy at work. I know it is angering a great many people to sit through it, and I don't appreciate the place or the heart that that Trump and his team are coming from. I think it's dangerous and irresponsible, but I'm really enjoying seeing our system at work here. Uh, But one more thing, we can't move on without bringing up what happened in Michigan yesterday, which was a severe moment of confusion as a bipartisan panel unanimously certified its presidential results after Republicans had temporarily blocked the certification process based on claims of voting irregularities in Detroit. The Wayne County Board of Canvassers were initially deadlocked two to two in a partisan battle, which one of the Trump campaign's legal advisors said uh, the initial refusal should open the door for the Republican state legislator to select the electors. However, GOP lawmakers have repeatedly said they will respect the statewide popular vote and will not intervene in the process. Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson has said she will conduct an audit on the precinct in Detroit that had found discrepancies, a condition upon which the results were certified. Some scary stuff there for sure. Wow. Well, Jay, thank you for all that information. Yeah. It is exactly what this segment is going to be about, bringing you the news, and you just did a very thorough job. So uh, one of the things that trended this week was the phrase, release the Kraken. If you went on Twitter, you might have seen it, which is what Trump's lawyer, Sidney Powell, promised to do while she was on Lou Dobbs' show on Fox Business earlier this week. Now, before I play the clip, a word about Sidney Powell. 
She is a far-right conspiratorial attorney who has spread debunked conspiracy theories about every Democratic politician from Hillary Clinton to Al Franken. Uh, She was hired by Michael Flynn, Trump's first national security advisor, who lied to the FBI. Uh, Politico called her strategy with Flynn a, quote, scorched earth legal strategy. Uh, She's been around a while and is one of the favorite attorneys of the right wing press, especially the more conspiratorial uh, right wing press. All of that negative info, however, doesn't necessarily mean she's not good at her job. So uh, she showed up on Lou Dobbs's show to talk about Dominion voting systems earlier this week. Maybe you have heard the term Dominion voting systems at some point this week. So Dominion is the company that owns and designs the machines that count the votes in several states, not all states, just a few, actually. Uh, the Trump strategy here is to to exhaust every every theory they can find before he legally has to leave office. But this particular theory is so insane, I don't even know where to start. They're yeah. basically alleging that the machines that count the votes were rigged by uh, communist sympathizers or some such nonsense. It's it's really crazy. But here's the clip. It's three minutes long, and I think it's important to listen to the entire thing because what Team Trump is doing here on the whole is more important than the individual conspiracies they're bringing forth. And I'll explain what I mean by that after I play this clip. This is what Sidney Powell had to say on a top-rated news show on a top-rated news network in prime frickin' time. Go. Well, I can hardly wait to put forth all the evidence we have collected on Dominion, starting with the fact it was created to produce altered voting results in Venezuela for Hugo Chavez, and then shipped internationally to manipulate votes for purchase in other countries, including this one. It was funded by money from Venezuela and Cuba, and and China has a role in it also. So if you want to talk about foreign election interference, we certainly have it now. For fraud this serious, I think even if the states are stupid enough to go ahead and certify the votes where we know the machines were operating and producing altered election results, if they're stupid enough to do that, then they will be set aside by the fraud also. I mean, we are talking about hundreds of thousands of votes. President Trump won this election in a landslide. It's going to be irrefutable. And we are, patriots are coming forward all, every day, all day, faster than we can collect their information with the testimony they're willing to give under oath about how their votes were stolen and how the machines operated. They were updated the night of the election, sometimes after the election. We've got statistical evidence that shows hundreds of thousands of votes being just put in and replicated. It's going to be there needs to be a massive criminal investigation and it's going to affect millions of voters and elections. The people in the election security part of Department of Homeland Security need to be fired yesterday. They're absolutely ridiculous. Of course, Chris Ray needs to be fired, too, because the only FBI interview of any witness was to intimidate him and try to get him to change his truthful testimony four hours by an anti-Trump FBI agent. 
They still have politics infecting the FBI instead of just following the law. We are on the precipice of this is essentially a new American revolution. And anybody who wants this country to remain free needs to step up right now. These are federal felonies. Altering a vote or uh, changing a ballot is a federal felony. People need to come forward now and get on the right side of this issue and report the fraud they know existed in Dominion voting systems because that's what it was created to do. It was its sole original purpose. It has been used all over the world to defy the will of people who wanted freedom. It's been uh, organized and, and conducted with the help of Silicon Valley people, the, the big tech companies, the social media companies, and even the media companies. And I'm going to release the Kraken. Now she's making some, uh, some bad crazy claims there, and if any of that were true, it would be the single greatest scandal in American history. But anyone can make any claims they like. You have to have actual evidence to back it up, Jay. So uh, as a big fan of our legal system, I'm not going to sit here and say all of her claims are false, but we need to see the evidence, right, mm -hmm. Jay? You know, a presumption, of, everyone's presumed innocent until proven guilty, right? 1,000%. Right. This system has been in use for a very long time. Right. And as you've said, it would be a pretty insane thing if right. these claims turned out to be true. I'm right. sure they'll have their day in court. Yep. Um, I'm sure that court will stay a local court and won't even make it to federal court because I cannot imagine, I really can't imagine a world in which these claims turn out to be true, but right. let's, let's explore it. Why not? Right. You know, but all of that is even beside the point because here's the thing. I'm going to say first that this is just my opinion on mm -hmm. what the actual strategy is here. I, you know, I don't have proof, definitive proof of this, but I have a pretty good handle on how the right-wing media apparatus operates and how these things typically play out. So I'm going to mm -hmm. give it a try, Jay. Okay. Okay. Let's go. Um, Sidney Powell, nor anyone on Trump's legal team have any evidence of these ridiculous claims, but it doesn't matter because releasing the Kraken, so to speak, actually just means releasing the insinuation that these things happened. And frankly, this is how the right has conducted politics for quite a while. I don't want to offend you, Jay, but I know you'll agree with me on some of this stuff, okay? Yeah. Hillary Clinton and the Clinton Foundation is involved in criminal activity, and we're going to get to the bottom of it. First, Jeff Sessions was going to get her. Then Bill Barr was going to get her. Barack Obama was illegally spying on the Trump campaign. We're going to create a hashtag called Obamagate, and then Bill Barr's private investigators are going to expose all the corruption that took place during the Obama administration. Somehow, however, none of these things ever pan out. Nobody yeah. ever goes to jail. Nobody ever gets indicted. But that the, the, the sort of constant drumbeat of allegations are enough to create a perception for your average Republican voter. I'm saying average Republican yeah. voter of mm -hmm. widespread and deep corruption taking place on the Democratic side. And that does a lot of damage to the Democratic Party in elections. As I've said a million times on the show at this point, the Democrats are strategically inept mm -hmm. and the Republicans are just much better at this stuff. Democratic politicians tend to think in terms of what ha what's happening right now, whereas Republican politicians are thinking about election outcomes 10 years from now. So they pinpointed Hillary Clinton as a threat back in the early 90s mm -hmm. and began slowly chipping away at denigrating her reputation. By the time she ran for office, the majority of American of the American public had a negative opinion of her. And and I'm not saying that some of that wasn't self-inflicted. Hillary doesn't have a naturally likable personality, yeah. but the narrative bill that takes place on the right certainly adds to it. So what I think they're setting up here 
they're setting up for here is mm-hmm. the the insinuation that there is a scandal regarding this election, the likes of which nobody has ever seen before. The greatest scandal in American history. The details of this kind of case would presumably take years to compile. So they know they're not going to release the Kraken in time to change the outcome of this election. But it'll be continued. Joe Biden will become president. And the opinion characters in the right wing press will be building this case for the next two years, and it will consume the majority of the oxygen in prime time, which will give the Republicans a good chance of taking back the House in 2022. And then they'll continue building the case for the following two years, which will give the Republicans a good chance of winning the presidential election in 2024. To me, this is how it's going to play out. And I'll admit I was wrong if I am. But, you know, I know a lot of you, a lot of you people on the left might be saying, well, who cares? Biden won the election. Trump and his goons are going to say what they're going to say. Their media apparatus will parrot it. And since it's all BS, we should just ignore it. Unfortunately, I'm a lot more cynical about these kind of things because I've seen the power that saturating the airwaves with conspiracy theories can have on the electorate. So just this morning, I texted Jay a poll that determined that half of Republicans say Joe Biden only won this election because it was rigged. And I asked Jay, is this a glass half empty stat or a glass half full stat? Because I'm honestly unsure. I mean, Jay, I mean, do you see this as a good thing or a bad thing, Jay, that only 50% of Republicans believe crackpot idiotic theories? Yeah, I think it's horrible. And I think, right. you know, we need to lessen that number and aim to lessen that number as much as humanly possible. I, it's, it's far too big for my comfort level, right. is, is what I would say. Okay. So before we move on here, it is worth noting that Trump has a history of claiming fraud and rigged for his entire political career. Yeah. Brianna Keeler on CNN actually put together a best of montage of these claims. Uh, I think it's funny, so we're gonna play a part of it for you here. Here's Brianna Keeler. President Trump's history as a sore loser is well documented, even from the time that he was young, which we're going to look at here in a moment. He baselessly shouted fraud and rigged election in every contest since at least 2012, from presidential elections to primaries to midterms, even a special election. In the Obama-Romney election, he went on a tweet storm pushing baseless claims and conspiracies about the Black Panthers, voting machines, stolen votes, switching votes. And then once the election was called, he said it was a total sham and a travesty. It would be out of character if Trump didn't call fraud. We've heard him do it in every recent election, 2016, 2018, 2020. You know, the system, folks, is rigged. It's a rigged system. Now, you have to understand, I'm not complaining about the states that I won. Those are okay. The Republican system is totally crooked. It's totally rigged. It's very hard for somebody like me to win, even though I'm winning very substantially. The system is also rigged because Hillary Clinton should have been precluded from running for the presidency of the United States. Folks, it's a rigged system. It's a rigged system, and we're going to beat it. We're going to beat it. There are a lot of people, a lot of people, my opinion, and based on proof, that try and get in illegally and actually vote illegally. But in California, the governor sent, I hear, or is sending millions of ballots all over the state, millions, to anybody, to anybody. When that starts happening, you don't have a a fair, you have a rigged system. You have a rigged system. I don't want to see a crooked election. This election will be the most rigged election in history if that happens. Absentee is great. 
but universal is going to be a disaster, the likes of which our country has never seen. The only way they can take this election away from us is if this is a rigged election. It's a fraud, and it's a shame. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. I mean, gaslighter in chief. <laughs> gaslighter in chief, for sure. And, and, you know, my favorite part of that is, uh, in my opinion, and also there's lots of evidence. <laughs> so is it your opinion or is there evidence? Yeah, yeah, I figure mean, it out there. Every president goes legacy hunting at this part, at this place in their, in their term, right? Right. It's getting close mm-hmm. to the end. Uh, a yeah. president who didn't win re-election, he, he wants to leave a legacy, right? <laughs> now, typically, it's for the betterment of the American people. And what they believe in, in terms of their ideology. Right. Now we had a conversation offline, uh, you know, a day or a day or two ago. And I believe that you hit on what Trump's legacy will be. And it's that he was part of the biggest electoral fraud in American history. He wants that to be his legacy Mm -hmm. that he lost and you know, nothing to do with his presidency that he lost an election and it was a massive, massive fraud. And that's yep. that's literally the the legacy he's chasing right now. It would be very characteristic of him because everything is based on grievances. It's very on brand. Yeah, yeah, right. It's, it's extremely on brand. Uh, and he won't focus on that. You're right. He won't focus on the good things that he actually did, yeah. which are few and far between. But there are a few. He's got some. Um, right. He's got some. He will instead focus on all of the thi- all the people who wronged him yeah. or the system that wronged him. Mm-hmm. That he's just a whiny little baby. But anyway, uh, Trump's refusal to concede this election is not just cute anymore. It, it is having an impact on how the transition to the Biden administration can happen. Mm-hmm. Just today, we heard breaking news from the New York Times claiming that Health and Human Services staffers were instructed Wednesday that if anyone from President-elect Biden's team contacts them, they are not to communicate with them uh, and are to alert Deputy Surgeon General Rear Admiral uh, Erica Schwartz. That's some deeply dark stuff right there. So so Trump himself has gone completely off the rails. Uh, you know, he's he's tweeting over and over that he won the election. I mean, the Twitter fact checking is just going insane. Yeah. Uh, it's a stain on our democracy. It's it's mm-hmm. unhinged and it's dangerous, uh, as as Justin mentioned before. You know, we, we were going to read some of these messages from Trump that he's been posting on Twitter, but decided that to even give it more oxygen is dumb at this point. So, Jay, uh, tell us about the the firings that happened this week. There are a few of those, right, that we should talk about before we move on. Absolutely. So yesterday, in another completely on-brand move, President Trump fired the nation's top election security official and his own appointee, Christopher Krebs, the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Krebs had publicly refuted the president's claims of electoral fraud and vouched for the integrity of the vote and voting process. And you know what happens when you refute the commander-in-chief? Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, never mind. That's North Korea. Sorry, I get those confused sometimes. Uh, In a brief statement on Twitter, Krebs doubled down, writing, quote, honor to serve. We did it right. Defend today, secure tomorrow, ending with, quote, protect 2020. This came a week after the Trump dismissal of Defense Secretary Mark Esper and other senior Defense Department officials, replacing them with presidential loyalists. Four senior civilian officials have been fired or have resigned since last Monday, including Esper, his chief of staff, and the top officials overseeing policy and intelligence. This, of course, all bad news and all very dangerous, and I'm hoping we'll end come January before too much damage can be done. So far, nothing here can't be undone, so that is some good news indeed. 
Classy, Jay. Very, very classy. Ugh. That that deep state is really deep, apparently. Oh, man. Yeah. In order to be a member of the deep state, basically all you need to do is say anything that's contradicting Trump. And all the automatically, you're a liberal deep stater. Of course. Yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah. It's just it's not it that works. hard to do. Yeah. No. So, okay, let's move on from the news, Jay, and uh, go into one of our favorite segments that we've brought back many, many a show at this point, many Indeed. an episode. Yeah. And this segment is called Culture Corner. The big question about new nerd cereal is which side? Orange flavor. Get hold of the Nintendo Entertainment System. Today, call for the real. The Transformers will return after these messages. Welcome to Blockbuster Video. Blockbuster Video. Okay, so for anyone who is familiar with my political spirit animal, Bill Maher, he does a weekly show on HBO entitled Real Time with Bill Maher. Unlike a lot of late night guys, he really seems to be the one political commentator comedian uh, who is readily willing to call out leftist garbage. Uh, At the end of his show, he does a segment called New Rules, which ends with a weekly monologue that is not unlike one of uh, the rants that Jay and I do on this show. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last Friday, his piece was very poignant because it followed up on a lot of the analysis we gave you guys last week about the election and a whole lot of what I have been saying as a liberal is killing liberalism and creating a vast distinction between liberalism and leftism. And leftism has got to go. So this clip is lengthy. And some of you might ask why we would take up so much time on our show to play you another guy's show. But I don't care because I think it's very well done and very poignant and something that everyone who calls themselves a liberal must hear right now. And I certainly think all you conservatives who listen to Down the Middle will appreciate this too. Bill Maher, do it. And finally, new rule with two Senate seats in Georgia still possible, seats that will make the difference between gridlock and progress. Democrats must figure out why so many voters still say to them, you're good enough, you're smart enough, but doggone it, we don't like you. Under the headline, something went wrong. The New York Times described a post-election conference call between Democratic leaders where they wept, cursed, and traded blame. Wait, I thought we won this one. <laughs> Which we did. We did. And yes, ding dong, the whiny little b- dead. Celebration is in order. We took a big step toward saving democracy and in the process lost 280 pounds of ugly fat. But Democrats were supposed to flip the Senate and didn't. Supposed to flip state legislatures, not a one. And they lost seats in the House in a year that was so much about making people aware of racism. Their share of minority votes went down. The message to Democrats from so much of the country seems to be, we don't like Trump, but we still can't bring ourselves to vote for you. If Cracker Jack was made of popcorn and dog and half the people threw out the popcorn, popcorn should want to know why. <laughs> Liberals can either write off half the country as irredeemable, or they can ask, what is it about a D next to a candidate's name that makes it so toxic? Let's ask Ruben Gallego. He's a congressman from Arizona. He was asked how his Democrats could do a better job connecting to Latinos. He said, first, start by not using the term Latinx which the vast majority of Latinos have never heard of, and when they do, don't like it. Who likes it? Pandering white politicians who mistake Twitter for real people. And don't get it that Latinx is like fetch. You can try to make it happen, but it's never gonna. 
Virginia Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger said after the election, if we are classifying Tuesday as a success, we will get torn apart in 2022. That's a congresswoman. (laughs) She was urging members not to talk about defunding the police. James Clyburn agreed. Defund the police is killing our party, he said. Pennsylvania Democrat Connor Lamb says Democratic rhetoric needs to be dialed back. It needs to be rooted in common sense. Thank you. Thank you. There, in my opinion, is the crux of the problem. Democrats too often don't come across as having common sense to a huge swath of Americans. And these are people who believe in QAnon. (laughs) But as I've said before, politics in this country is binary. You have to wear everything anyone on your side does. Republicans are the party of don't wear masks, kids in cages, lock her up. And Democrats are the party of every hypersensitive social justice warrior, woke in the news. They're the party that disappears people or tries to make them apologize for ridiculous things. Anne Hathaway apologized last week because in her new movie she plays a witch, a fictional character that has three claw-like fingers, and that's offensive to people with limb differences. The week before, the NHL's Arizona Coyotes dropped a player after it came out in the press that when he was in eighth grade, he bullied a disabled kid. Yes, that's a bad thing to do. But are we really going after people for what they did in middle school now? Democrats already lost seats for going after what Brett Kavanaugh did in high school. Common sense. Last year, I read about how NBC held an emergency meeting to determine if Mario Lopez should be fired from his job at Access Hollywood. I thought, holy did he sexually assault somebody? No, he went on a podcast, and when the host brought up the trend of liberal parents letting toddlers pick their gender identity, he said... My God, if you're three years old and you're saying you think you're a boy or a girl, I just think it's a dangerous as a parent to make that determination. Cue the groveling apology, followed by America saying, uh, yeah, I think Mario's right. Maybe kids shouldn't make big life decisions while you still need to make choo-choo noises to get the food in their mouth. <laughs> I can do this all day. Cite stories big and small that are endlessly on people's news feeds, that add up to a constant drip, drip, drip of these people are nuts. Everybody heard about that story out of San Francisco about a guy who got on a crowded elevator with a female professor and when she asked what floor, he said, women's lingerie. You know, a little joke, for which he earned a formal complaint because it left her shaken. Shaken? Who are these jellyfish? Like the woman who almost derailed Biden's campaign because he kissed the back of her head before she went out to make a speech. She said her brain couldn't process what was happening. Really? Your brain couldn't process that? Like string theory or wormholes? (laughs) An old man was trying to show support in his old man way. She said she was embarrassed, shocked, confused. Well, then the outside world isn't for you. And certainly running the world isn't. I talked to a guy in the Midwest once who told me the story about the day he went out to get his car in the supermarket parking lot, but couldn't back out because a mother and her very young daughter were standing behind his car, which was next to their car, which had a Hillary bumper sticker on it. And the little girl was screaming at her mother, who was profusely apologizing to the child. And he said to me, I just can't let people like that take over this country. That's what people vote on, not policy. Democrats kept saying in the campaign, you can't possibly think Trump is preferable to what we're selling. And many voters keep saying, yes, we can. 
In fact, our primary reason voting for him is to create a bulwark against you because your side thinks silence is violence and looting is not. Because you're the party of chasing speakers off college campuses and making everyone walk on eggshells and replacing let's not see color with let's see it always and everywhere, formerly the position of the Ku Klux Klan. It would be so easy to win elections if we would just drop this Democrats need to listen to our new president-elect's old boss. This idea of purity and you're never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff, you should get over that quickly. Quickly, like before they vote in Georgia. All right. Yeah, Bill Maher. Slow clap for Bill Maher. I mean, yeah, I know. Seriously. Uh, It's really funny because he says a lot of the things that I said in my spiel about uh, what a leftist, uh, what a liberal Liberal against leftism is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of what we've talked about in terms of um, the Democratic Party uh, sort of reverting to their identity politics and how damaging that's been. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, Bill Maher has been saying for years now, it's really interesting that the that D next to a politician's name has become so toxic. And I really don't think it has anything to do with policy. Uh, when you actually poll a lot of the Democratic policies, they're well polled. People around the country. Yeah, they're popular. Yeah, are, they're popular. It's all about the culture war. The yeah. culture and, and and I think the Democrats have really lost touch with that and have just pissed a lot of people off. Like I said last week, the, uh, uh, you know, the the um, defund the police movement was mm-hmm. was a terrible look for them. And uh, they've done it now with a lot of things, with the cancel culture. And I think if the Democrats want to win elections, they need to get rid of that. And I think Bill Maher said everything uh, that I would say about it. Yeah, I mean, he's a great person to voice this. I mean, considering he comes from sort of a comedic background, there's been a lot of of, of cancellation in that yep. universe. Um, and he also has involved himself in religion and now in politics, obviously, yep. for a long time. And so he has a very unique perspective on the culture itself and yep. how it's morphed and changed. And so I think that this is something we need to give bigger voice to and we need to listen up for because it is something that is affecting um, not just our ability to legislate, as you said, a lot of these legislative agendas are popular, but it's getting in the way of that. Um, right. This sort of structure of the uh, this thing that's come between the Democratic Party and their ideals. In, in a lot of ways, it's sort of the same on the right in the way that Trump has come between the Republican Party and its ideas. Yeah, yeah, you know, we need to get we need to get back to the ideas with which these parties were were formed and um, and exist today, because a lot of those things have nothing to do with culture. They have right. to do with government. They have to right. do with with the way that we run our country, not the way that we run our day-to-day interactions with each other socially. And I yeah. think that's what he's speaking to. And I, I I love that he's giving voice to this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think I said this in the first or second episode of this podcast. You know, I think there's a lot of people in middle America who 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 don't really necessarily know about economic theory or mm-hmm. small uh, or, or, or uh, limited government yeah. or free markets. They, they that nomenclature doesn't mean anything to them. No, this but is politics. Wh- this right, this thing. Right, exactly. The the, the cultural stuff has really they, what they know is that when they come home from work and they turn on the TV their the culture has shifted in a way that doesn't make them feel good. Yeah, that's why the fear-mongering worked because right, right. that's what they consider to be politics. Right, it, exactly. And and, and a lot of people would say, well, tough tough noogies for those people. They need to evolve and and, and get past all of that. But I think the Democrats need to 
at least ease their way into this, you yeah. know, because there are just a lot of people who are not going to be cool with dressing their little ki- their little boys up like girls, which we'll get to in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, Democrats have to be cognizant of that. And they've really lost that working class base because they have lost the culture. Of of those people. They have Mm -hmm. lost touch with those people. And there's so many examples. We'll get to some more later in this podcast, actually. Moving on. um, Barack Obama released his memoir. It's called A Promised Land. It is 768 pages. And this is only part one. Uh, Does anyone think Trump could fill like 20 pages of his official memoir? I mean, he could fill them. They'd be about the same four words. (laughs) The first 19 pages would just be about how he's very fairly untreated. Like, (laughs) that that would that would take the last page would be his accomplishments so uh anyway uh i already started reading it and it's wonderfully written as one would expect uh also as usual the right-wing press has not taken kindly to this book shall we say almost every conservative commentator did a full day of opining on how bad obama is in the wake of this book being released and most of the analysis seems to be centered around the idea that obama just loves obama more than any person on earth you know ladies get yourself someone who loves you as much as Obama loves Obama. So (laughs) it seems like the triggering that happens whenever Obama opens his mouth centers around the idea that he's an egomaniac and that he's, you know, the smartest person in the room. Uh, I like Ben Shapiro a lot, but he calls Trump the checkered suit version of Barack Obama, implying that Trump is obviously less polished than Obama, but that they're ultimately the same at heart. Uh, I think he's dead wrong about this, but I I can understand the policy critiques that one could make against Obama, but I'll never understand the personality critiques, especially while Trump is president. So, Jay. What is it, do you think, that triggers the right so much about Barack Obama? I mean, I think you touched on it. I think they are, they're really talking about two different people. There is Barack Obama, the political actor. Right. And there's Barack Obama, the, the person. And I think Barack Obama, the person, is someone who we all want to hang out with. Right. He is a good uh, person. And he's like, he, he could be your friend and right. we love him. And he was, great. He, yeah. he was on Anthony Bourdain's show. And you just I was like, just about to say that you yeah, read my it, mind. Yeah. That's the best. I mean, he, <laughs> right. you, you know, you want to sit down with the guy and have a cold beer. Like you right, just right. want to do that. And eat now, noodles. Yeah. And eat noodles. Right now they fail to separate the two people, especially in Ben Shapiro's critique of him. Right. And when he talks about him on the whole, I believe that he's speaking to him as a political actor. Now he's in no way as bad as Trump. But he's as close as I believe we've gotten. I think Trump was a reaction to Obama in that Obama really did introduce a lot of the executive privilege that we see being taken um, by some of the actions of the... Some of the the, norm breaking, you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, And and I think, you know, there are reasons for that. I think Obama could justify some of those actions, but it is new. It it was different when he did it. And it definitely pissed off a great many people on the right, rightly so. Uh, because the the executive office wasn't designed for some of these actions. Right. And so I do, I agree with you that critique is wrong because it doesn't really give credence to the totality of the man. Right. It just speaks to one aspect of him without specifically speaking to that. It's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I've listened to right-wing pundits for a long time and, um, you know, I can't think of a single person that they they have such a disdain for more than Barack Obama. I mean, even more than the Hillary Clintons or the Clintons mm-hmm. in general or the Kennedys, you know, they, these are all people that conservative America has, has, has panned for a long time, but there is something that triggers the right about Obama 
that I don't think any other politician in our lifetime, at least, has done. Um, and it, it's interesting. He, he won't engage in the debate. He's, he's just still, he's, he's so solid and he's yeah. so consistent. I don't know if that, you know, sometimes when someone's arguing with you and they stay super calm and you start right. freaking out, that pisses mm-hmm. you off more maybe. and more. Maybe or, it's that. I mean, I think there's a number of elements to it. Maybe, or, or maybe it's um, what I'm about to talk about now that has that plays some sure. role in it. So mm-hmm. with that, you know, one of the parts of uh, of the book that the conservative media is very upset over is Obama's analysis of Sarah Palin, mm-hmm. who, of course, was John McCain's running mate in 2008 in that election. Yeah. So speaking of which, I highly suggest everyone watch, since this is uh, the, the Culture Corner segment, I highly suggest everyone watch uh, Game Change on HBO yeah. with Julianne Moore and Sarah, as Sarah Palin and uh, Woody Harrelson as campaign director Steve Schmidt. Uh, you can draw a straight line between how the movie portrays Palin and the entire presidency of Donald Trump. I'll get to that in a moment. So according to the Washington Post, in conjunction with excerpts taken from Obama's book, as Palin created a surge of interest in the Republican ticket, Obama was briefly worried that he had been outfoxed by uh, McCain and the and that Palin would pull away uh, enough undecided voters to swing the race to the GOP. But he soon figured the choice would backfire because, quote, on just about every subject relevant to governing the country, she had absolutely no idea what the hell she was talking about. In the end, Obama writes, the most troubling aspect of the Palin pick was what it said about the devolving direction of the nation's politics. Obama found Palin's ineptitude, quote, troubling on a deeper level. Her incoherence didn't matter to the vast majority of Republicans who saw questioning her knowledge of issues as proof of a liberal conspiracy. Obama goes goes on in his book to say, quote, I see a straight line from the announcement of Sarah Palin as the vice presidential nominee to what we see today in Donald Trump, the emergence of the Freedom Caucus, the Tea Party, and the shift in the center of gravity for the Republican Party. Whether that changes, I think, will depend in part on the outcome of this election. He's talking about the 2020 election. But it's also going to depend on the degree of self-reflection inside the Republican Party. And Jay, you know, this goes back to something uh, that we've talked about for quite a while. And I, I, I don't know if we've ever actually discussed it on the show, but Sarah Palin is the start of Donald Trump. Don't 1, you agree? thousand percent. Now, I've, I've often railed against the Tea Party. She yeah. is the beginning of the Tea Party. She has allowed for um, the sort of, I'm just going to say it, dumber Republican sentiments yeah. Yeah. Of of I don't understand this, therefore I'm just going to undercut it and say it isn't true to yeah. become pervasive. It was it was patient zero in uh, what to- I call totally. this, uh, the sickness of the Republican Party, and it's 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 brought us Trump. I could not agree with Obama more here, honestly. Yeah, yeah, and and, and I think a lot of it is also you know she had this way of sort of connecting with the. Uh, the, the working man. class, yeah. the everyman, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that really did bring on a lot of people to the Republican Party. So I think the Republican Party sort of felt in debt, like that was our new our new direction. Yeah. She's also, uh, a lot of people forget this, but you know, the Republicans have had a problem with the media since the 50s. Newt Gingrich used to rail against the media, but Palin was really the first, uh, you know, politician american politician that started calling it the lamestream media yeah. she started uh degrading them and uh you know talking about how they were the enemy of the people i think she actually used that phrase um she routinely um ignored orders from the mccain campaign and 
stoked racial tensions for sure. She was she was uh, y- you know inspired to do that. Yeah. Well, you know what the first order that that John McCain actually ignored. Yeah. Was, was having her as VP. Yeah. Uh, they exactly. tried to talk him out of this. He, he you know he thought he was sort of he was older and he didn't get the younger vote and he didn't bring something new to the ticket and he wanted someone with voltage so he picked a yep. woman and he picked someone who he thought was interesting and exciting she just ended up being uninformed and, yeah. and, un- and un- uneducated yeah uneducated uninformed and uh and also sort of um had a penchant for uh stoking tensions in the country that didn't yeah. need to be stoked um and i think that that would be my main critique of palin so we could blame all of this on the great john mccain what a, i know which is a bummer because i i do like mccain but that yeah, it was it too. was not a good it decision. was a terrible mistake yeah. yeah it was now of course sarah palin responded this week on sean hannity's show calling obama a purveyor of untruths uh she then tweeted out the following this is funny Dear President Obama, hi, exclamation point. <laughs> I like that. All right. Media reports that your new book blame me for the dra- blames me for the drastic shift in the GOP 12 years ago. Just wanted to drop a line to thank you and say how honored I am. The movement that began with our campaign has empowered hardworking, everyday Americans to find their voice and unify with unshakable commitment to save our country that we love so much. So there you yeah, have it, more folks. of the same. Yeah. Thank you, yeah, Sarah Palin. Exactly, and and you know what? Even the language she uses there—the whole "save our country"—that's yeah. you know, really when. And I know McCain fought against this. The idea. This is really when people started noticing that we weren't ota- attacking Obama for his ideas anymore, for, for for his policy agenda. We were attacking him because he was evil. You know, that's yeah, yeah. really when this shift came. That. If he was going to become president, the country was going to die, yeah. you know, that he was so deeply evil that the only way w- to, w- to save our country was to elect sure. it's, it's you know, Sarah Palin. I mean, you hear, right. you hear very similar sentiments, which, which is what drove the vote for Trump you right. know, the, with a, a decent amount of this country. Right, Over and I don't want to say that's never happened in America. I don't know enough history to know that that's never happened, but it certainly never happened in our lifetime. Where it started to, and I've said this many times on this podcast, where you start to look at your competitor as operating, or at least convincing your base that the that your competitor is operating in bad faith. He's got an evil agenda. Right. Yeah, as he's opposed got an to, ev- right. We both as, want the best for the country. We have different ways of thinking about it. Would be right. the positive way to 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 really look at that versus what you're saying, which has been done recently, is that this person wants the worst for America. Yep. They want the, the American ideals to be gone and to die. And yep. th- therefore, they're evil. And that's right. Exactly. Or they're so corrupt. Yeah. And, you know, all these corruption charges that keep springing up for right. every politician mm-hmm. that 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 hits the scene nowadays. So, yeah. And John McCain really did try to fight back about that. But again, you could draw a, a direct line between Sarah Palin and Trump, because I think Trump took the Sarah Palin sort yeah. of uh, blueprint and mm-hmm. just ran with it. Yeah, you know, so there you go. So next on the cultural front, in the wake of this election, people have been uh, looking for alternative sources of social media because apparently Facebook and Twitter are censoring conservative thought, uh, even though Dan Bongino and Ben Shapiro get more engagement than anyone else on those platforms. But anyway, uh, Parler is uh, becoming a real thing on the right. Parler is a new social media company. Uh, Tell us a bit about what you found out about Parler, Jay. So you might have heard the name Parler if you've paid attention to right-wing media 
or maybe been invited by a right-wing friend, or perhaps you've seen it on the Apple App Store, where it is the number one downloaded app with nearly one million downloads within days of the election. Parler has branded itself a non-biased, free-speech social media platform focused on protecting users' rights, meaning that posts that could spread untrue claims do not get labeled as misinformation. As CEO John Matz said, there are no fact-checkers on the app. Matz worked as a software engineer for Amazon Web Services, and Dan Bongino, Riz's favorite, quote, journalist, also mm-hmm. has an ownership stake. Parler's November 7th community guidelines states that it won't decide what content will be removed or filtered or whose account will be removed on the basis of the opinion expressed within the content. Admits this right-wing exodus from Facebook and Twitter, other social platforms Gab and MeWe have begun to take off as well, all claiming the free speech, no censorship tag. It's good and it's not good. I'm not about the continued polarization, but regardless of that, this is America. And if you can't exploit a polarized situation for profit, where else can you? Right. In all seriousness, this is the free market. And just as we have Etsy shops for people who love bunny blankets, we can have social media for people on the right. Good for the guys that started these business ventures, and I wish them success. I think it can be dangerous. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- these echo chambers uh, can exist where dangerous information can be relayed back and forth, and then it becomes known as truth. But yeah. again, as I said, like this is a business venture, and it's for profit, and that's allowed in this country. Yeah, I, I sort of, uh, you know, I agree with you that I think it's good for the country in the fact that it's a free market enterprise, but yeah. it's bad for the country. Yeah, because it's going to create an echo chamber. What I really worry about is going getting to a place in our society where the 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 right and the left, conservatives and liberals just lead even, completely yeah, different lives where we mm-hmm. go to different burger shops. Yeah. We go, we buy our shoes at different companies, you know, eventually, you know, and especially with some of the, these companies that have taken very strong social justice stance and mm-hmm. been very political, like Nike, yeah. eventually conservatives are going to say, you know what? I don't want a, a conservative is going to pop up with their own shoe company. Yeah. And that's going to be the conservative shoe company. You know, I even see, I, I listen to enough right wing podcasts where they have like this coffee called black rifle coffee. They're always doing ads for Yeah. And the 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 uh, copy for the ad is always like these are no like liberal snowflakes. These are guys that you're gonna find in Seattle sipping a, a latte. <laughs> you know these are guy these are hard guys. They're conservatives. They yeah. were in the military. You know it's a, it's like black sludge or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But you know that's what I worry about that because I think our that that's where our society is going to. We're gonna eat at different places. You know, and that's a dangerous thing for a country. It's, it's to the detriment of each citizen. Because yeah. we're, we're better people when we expand our worldview. We're better yeah. people when we hear um, opposing arguments and we consider them into our own. Yeah. We're, we're yeah. just better people for it. And so if right. those things cease to exist, it, it, it's not only dangerous, it's a loss. Right. And, you know, lastly on this topic, I think, you know, and, and some people will disagree with me. I know there's Antifa on the left or whatever. But the majority of these sort of crazy conspiracy theories that that pop up do come from the right, the American right, at least. And uh, I worry that in an echo chamber like that, where there's no one fact checking and no one pushing back because everyone agrees that these kind of uh, dangerous sentiments like, you know, the Democrats are molesting children in a pizza shop or something they become they they become more they snowball and i think there's a with 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 these with a new platform like parlor there's a greater chance of that happening more so i worry about that as well
So uh, moving on, uh, that was all very politically oriented Culture Corner material, but the last one we're going to bring you today shouldn't be political in the slightest, but has become political somehow. So uh, three different people trended on Twitter this past week. Harry Styles, the uh, singer, songwriter, and actor who became famous as a member of One Direction, but has since gone on to have quite the career of his own, hasn't he, Jay? Yeah, I actually love his music. He's fantastically He's, talented. He, what a he voice. He really is, yes. Yeah. Uh, Candace Owens, who's a right-wing provocateur, and Ben Shapiro, who obviously is a right-wing commentator and head of Daily Wire. And it's all relating to Harry Styles' very controversial photo shoot in Vogue magazine in which he wore a dress. Oh, so, so controversial. Yeah. So much controversy. <laughs> right, exactly. So much controversying. So uh, this scene seemed uh, pretty innocuous to me, considering rock stars and pop stars have been dressing in women's clothing for a very long time. I mean, the entire 1980s featured men doing everything they could to look as feminine as possible, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, Candace Owens Owens put out uh, the following message regarding the Harry Styles photo shoot. She sort of kicked this whole thing off. Um, she said, uh, quote, there is no society that can survive without strong men. Uh, the East knows this. In the West, the steady feminization of our men at the same time that Marxism is being taught to our children is not a coincidence. It is an outright attack. Bring back manly men. <laughs> so first, I have to say that Candace Owens is a huge Trump fan, uh, thinks he's the greatest president to ever live. Uh, So when she says manly men, is she referring to people like Trump? Because, I mean, is that how a real man behaves? You know, like always the victim, constantly airing your grievances, making up (laughs) conspiracy theories because you're mad that you lost an election. Not to mention, Jay, I don't know many men who spend $50,000 a year on their hair. As we found out with the with the tax thing that re- was released a few Keep months ago, in mind, you are talking to me. It's true. But you don't spend fifty k. <laughs> no, I, I, I spent a lot too, right? Yeah. And and you know, I don't. I also don't know uh, many men who slather on orange bronzer every morning. So no, you know, not still I'm, anyway. I, right. I've known a lot of alpha males in my life, but yeah. none that do any of that. Jay. No, so so. Not. So then Ben Shapiro chimed in and actually responded to Candace Owens uh, saying the following, quote, this is perfectly obvious. Anyone who pretends that it is not uh, a referendum on masculinity for men to don floofy dresses is treating you as a full on idiot. He loves now, that word. Floofy. There, right. He does. There, there were many replies to this tweet from Ben showing him in his full on five foot four American <laughs> Jewish physique and comparing it to a shirtless Harry Styles, which let's just say is notably more masculine than Ben's photo. I'm just yep. going to going to leave it at that. So, Jay, we've talked on this episode, this very episode about what seems to trigger leftists so much. And it usually comes down to some kind of politically incorrect statement that somebody Mm -hmm. made 20 years ago. And so we have to wipe that person off the face of the earth. Uh, But what is your take on this Harry Styles thing? And why is the right so triggered by things like this? Because while I don't think that this is an earth-shattering debate, Mm -hmm. I do think it's important to our listeners to understand where these trigger points are for both sides. Yeah, I mean it's really tough for me and I'm 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 an empath. I, I you know I, right. I I find it decently easy to empathize with people. I had right. a really hard time coming up with uh where these people are coming from. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you know I think this thing is ridiculous. We've right. discussed it you and I offline. Yeah. We're I also com- from the musician culture though. Co- so even though you're a conservative, I think we're a little more adjusted to that kind of stuff. We've been around the homosexual community a lot more, so yeah. 
so we've discussed it offline, and you know, I drew comparisons to David Bowie and Kurt Cobain, Marilyn Manson, Elton John. You mentioned Lenny Kravitz. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, both yeah. past and present examples. Let me of just this. say something about Lenny Kravitz okay, before you continue, okay? Yeah. Lenny yeah. Kravitz is, I remember seeing a behind the music with him, and he was talking about how he was interested in wearing girls' clothes when he was three years old, okay? Right. Like, it just was a thing with it. He was very flamboyant. He Fine. just came out of the womb flamboyant. Now, you will be hard-pressed to find a guy who, in America who has done better with women than Lenny Kravitz. What about yeah. Prince, you know? Yeah, but, sure. But going back to Lenny Kravitz, I don't think there is a Jew in America who has had less problems with women than... And Lenny Kravitz. Okay, so so all of that flamboyancy didn't seem to uh, to matter. But go on. No, look, this is nothing new at all, or even all that edgy. This story isn't that Harry Styles wore a dress. This story is that Candace Owens commented on Harry Styles wearing a dress, and of course, that was a signal. It was a bad right. signal to the far right to join in, and then to some degree to the far left to defend. And before you know it, we're in the middle. We're in the middle of a political debate. Now, I do want to note that I agree with the gist of what Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro have to say on the subject in terms of masculinity. I right. believe it's essential to a functioning society the same way I believe femininity is essential to a functioning society. It's a Ju Judeo-Christian ethic and value, and I believe it to be essential and important. I'm basically there, too. Yeah, I, I also agree with Owens' statement that there's a cultural feminization of men happening currently. These are the men that are being lauded, while some masculine men are being criticized. Now, it's not nearly as widespread as Owens would have us think. Right. And what I think is truly ridiculous is that we're still having this conversation about how it's shocking to see a musician wearing a dress. Nor do I honestly really care. As long as dudes roam the earth, there will be dudes being dudes. <laughs> right, I'm not exactly. worried about that. I, I just yeah. think this is another example of a politicized culture and an opportunist seeing a moment to fire a shot at a far-left ideology that isn't all that pervasive. And it's right. evidenced by her inclusion of the word Marxism and implying yeah. that there's a connection between the two when there is no connection to draw between the two. <laughs> no. I, it's, it's really yeah. tough for me to understand where she's coming from other than she's... She just joined the Daily Wire. She is new She's about town. She's yeah. a provocateur. She saw an opportunity to fire a shot, and she took it, and, yeah. th and that's where we are. I, but I it wasn't just her and Shapiro. I mean, a lot of the right-wing commentators were talking about this as something that was really bad for society. Because they're, they're following the lead of what they believe to be the younger generation of who yeah. they are. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, yeah. they're, taking, yeah, totally. they're taking their, their uh, sort of direction from, from these people. I get it. Yeah, we're on the same page here about that, for sure. Um, now, before we move on, I want to clarify something I said last week when we were talking about dressing little boys in girls' clothing while we're on this subject. Yeah. Uh, I, realized as, I, I realized as I was listening to that episode that I didn't do a great job of explaining my position on this. So uh, my feeling generally is that little kids, until they're probably 11 or 12 years old at least, are not mature enough to understand the complexities of sexuality. Absolutely. So, so when my three-year-old son would come out of his bedroom with his four-year-old sister and they'd both be wearing her frozen dresses you know one was Elsa one was Anna mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we wouldn't get worried or upset because we understand as I would hope most rational people do that little children can't contemplate that kind of stuff yet yeah. but but with that said I do think it is the parents responsibility to teach their kids about certain societal expectations that mm -hmm. even as a sort of rebellious guy that I am I still think are important an important part of 
setting your kids up to lead a normal and happy life. And and so I think it's important that boys wear boy clothes and girls wear girl clothes while they're young. I really do. But but I think also that biology sort of naturally sorts it out and takes over. Yeah. Like by the time my son was five, he no longer had any interest in her clothes. Yeah. And he started playing with trucks and wearing muscle tees. And mm-hmm. that all happened on its own. So I, I guess my, my, my final summation on this is that it's important for parents to teach their kids about societal and biological norms. And then as they get older, it's up to them if they want to break from those norms. And as a liberal, I personally wouldn't care if my adult kids were norm breakers, whether that meant they were gay or they had pink hair or whatever. In fact, I may actually see that as being an asset and something that was really cool at that point. So who knows? But that's all I'm saying. Yeah, look, I think there's a very important distinction to make. I completely would defend you and agree with you in this point that when you're talking about a child, it is very different than whether you're talking about an adult. Now, whether or not I personally agree with whether an adult should be dressing like a female or, you know, taking on a different gender is a different conversation. Right. Um, But they're well within their right to do so in their right frame of mind. Um, When you have a child and they're easily influenced or they don't know any better, it it is your uh, responsibility, as you said, as a parent to direct them in the way that they'll go. And and I think that that is it, it's right on. I, I I see no problem with that. Hundred percent. We've really we've really been as, as down the middle as you could possibly get on the show. We're agreeing on almost everything. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully everybody <laughs> likes that. Right. Okay. So before we move on to our topic of the day this week, we have got to give the award for Bonehead of the Week out to somebody, Jay. I know. It's been a while. Right. And with all the boneheads that exist in our politics these days, it's often hard to pick just one. But this week, however, it was easy. This is Bonehead of the Week. Okay, this week, the Bonehead of the Week Award goes to our very own governor of the great state of California, Gavin Newsom. Now, Gavin, the unofficial Ken doll of American politics, was such a bonehead this week that he decided to attend a birthday dinner for a political advisor with dozens of other people at one of the most prestigious restaurants in the world, French Laundry. But the hits don't stop there, Jay. Oh, no. Pictures surfaced a few days later showing none of the people at the party wearing masks. When you're the governor of a state that is handing down the most draconian and extreme COVID-19 measures on its citizens of any state in the nation, and you're not only attending an unmasked birthday party, but doing it at a restaurant that only a handful of people in the world can afford to eat at, I'm sorry, Gavin, but you might just be a dip. (laughs) With many cities in California going on mandatory curfew starting this Friday that will make it so that everyone has to be in their homes by 10 p.m. or face massive fines and or arrest, you'd think that the governor of said state would have just a little bit more self-awareness. Now... I kid Gavin a little bit because I actually like him generally, and I think he's done a pretty damn good job in the face of this unprecedentedly hard situation. However, this goes back to what we've talked about many times before on this show. People already think the Democrats are hypocritical and elitist eating ice cream in front of their $30,000 refrigerators in cities that are riddled with crime, drugs, and homelessness. So why add to the problem? 
If you're too special to follow the rules that your own government sets forth, then maybe you either need to reevaluate those rules or look up humility in the dictionary. If Democrats want to continue to lose elections, they should by all means continue to virtue signal while simultaneously behaving like their Republican counterparts, who at least have the foresight to not do the virtue signaling. Congrats, Gavin. You earned it. Okay, last segment of the day. Let's go on to our topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. So uh, after any election, we are always left with many people who will stare at that election map that CNN has up on the right side of the screen 24-7 and uh, see how the Democratic candidate has 5 million more votes than the Republican candidate and somehow still manages to lose the election. I'm not talking about this election, but in the past. And they'll ask themselves, you know, why the hell do we still use this dumb electoral college system anyway? I mean... Why should my vote in California be many times less meaningful than a person's vote in Arizona or in Florida? Well, it turns out that the founders, in their infinite wisdom, thought of that. And while abolishing the Electoral College has been an agenda item for the far left for many years, Jay is going to give you some Electoral College buzzed history that might help you to form a new perspective on the system. Jay, buzz like buzz buzzard. Hello, and welcome to Buzzed History. This week, we are tackling a subject many of you have requested we cover, the Electoral College. Despite the term itself not being mentioned in the Constitution, the Electoral College is a constitutional compromise established by the Founding Fathers. That compromise was between the election of the President by a vote in Congress and the election of the President by a popular vote of qualified citizens. Both Article 2 and the 12th Amendment refer to electors, but as I've mentioned, not specifically to an Electoral College. We'll get into this further, but first, a little background. At the time of the Philadelphia Convention, no other country in the world directly elected its chief executive. This obviously found our delegates in uncharted waters, and further complicating this monumental occasion was the distrust placed in the executive thanks mostly to King George III and his gang of overreaching colonial governors. At the convention, the delegates were split into two groups. One group felt that Congress should have nothing to do with picking the president due to the possibility of collusion between the executive and legislative branches, and the other camp was completely against the people electing the president by popular vote due to a lack of educational resources, especially in rural outposts. They feared three things, an uneducated electorate and or a democratic mob steering the country astray and or a populist president appealing directly to the people and commanding a dangerous amount of power. Out of these debates arose a compromise based on the idea of electoral intermediaries, not picked by Congress or elected by the people. Instead, these electors would be appointed by each state, and through them, the ballots for the presidency would be cast. Once this decision was reached, another hurdle lay in the delegates' path, to determine exactly how many electors each state would be assigned. And it is within this point where you may have heard some discussion already, or may hear some at your Zoom Thanksgiving. The divide on this issue was between slave-owning and non-slave-owning states. It was the same issue that was plaguing the distribution of seats in the House of Representatives. Should or shouldn't the founders include the slaves in counting a state's population? In 1787, about 40% of people living in the southern states were enslaved black people who could not vote. 
James Madison from Virginia, where enslaved people accounted for 60% of the population, knew that either a direct presidential election or one with electors divided up according to free white residents only wouldn't fly in the South. The result was the highly controversial three-fifths compromise, in which enslaved black people would be counted as three-fifths of a person for the purpose of allocating representatives and electors and calculating federal taxes. The compromise ensured that southern states would ratify the Constitution and gave Virginia home to more than 200,000 slaves, a quarter or 12 of the total electoral votes required to win the presidency, which at that time was 46 electoral votes. As you can see, the creation of the Electoral College was in part a political workaround for the persistence of slavery in the United States, but it was even more than that. In 1787, there were no political parties. The drafters of the Constitution assumed that electors would vote according to their individual discretion, not the dictates of a state or national party. Today, as we know, most electors are bound to vote for their party's candidate. The Constitution also states nothing about how the state should allot their electoral votes. The assumption being that each elector's vote would be counted, but over time, all but Maine and Nebraska have passed laws to give all electoral votes to the candidate who wins the state's popular vote count. Any semblance of elector independence has essentially been wiped out. Another incorrect assumption made by the founders is that most elections would ultimately be decided by the House of Representatives. According to the Constitution, if no single candidate wins a majority of the electoral votes, the decision goes to the House where each state gets one vote. This of course proved quite false after the formation of national political parties, the shrinking of the number of presidential candidates, and since this time only two U.S. elections have been, have been decided by the House, the last one in 1824. The 12th Amendment helped with these issues, proposed in 1803 and ratified a year later. It was framed with a national party system in mind. After the election of 1800-1801, in which John Adams squared off against Thomas Jefferson, with Jefferson prevailing, it was found that Republican electors had no formal way to designate that they wanted Jefferson for president and Aaron Burr for VP, rather than vice versa. This confusion was exploited despite the outcome, and thus the 12th Amendment was birthed. This amendment allows each party to designate one candidate for president and a separate candidate for vice president. The amendment's modifications of the electoral process transformed the framers' framework, enabling future presidential elections to be party-centric. Two other amendments changed the Electoral College, in the 20th Amendment, where a time limit was placed on the process, and in the 23rd Amendment, giving electors to the District of Columbia. So after all of this, I bet you're asking, well, gee, Jay, why does the Electoral College still exist, despite its contentious origins and weird fit with modern politics? Well, for starters, there is no chance of a runoff or protracted national recount. For example, when President John F. Kennedy won over Richard Nixon in 1960, the popular vote margin was 11,574. Columnist George Will comments, quote, If all 68-plus million popular votes had been poured into a single national bucket, there would have been powerful incentives to challenge the results in many of the nation's 170,000 precincts. The current system has 538 electors, one for each member of the House and Senate, plus an additional three people who live in Washington, D.C., who meet in their respective states and vote for president and vice president. Those votes are counted by the president of the Senate in a joint session of Congress. Each state gets three electors. California, the most populous state, has 52 congressmen and two senators, so they get 55 electoral votes. Texas, the largest reliably Republican-leaning state, has 36 congressmen and two senators, so they get 38 electoral votes. Six states are so small, population-wise, that they only have one congressperson apiece and the lowest possible three electoral votes. 
And with the exception of Washington, D.C., voters in in Puerto Rico and non-state territories get no electoral votes, although they can take part in presidential primaries. The states are in charge of selecting their own electors, and a number of states do not require their electors to honor the election results, which has led occasionally to the phenomenon known as, quote, a faithless elector, a subject we are tackling in this week's interview with author Emily Conrad. It takes 270 electoral votes to get a majority of the Electoral College, and the total number of electors cannot change unless there are more lawmakers added on Capitol Hill or a constitutional amendment. But the number of electors allocated to each state can change every 10 years after the constitutionally mandated census. So hopefully you participated in that this past year. This census determines the number of congressmen each state has, gaining a House seat or two or losing the same. This is the reason for the public debate over whether the U.S. Census should ask if someone is a citizen, as currently it does not. If there is a tie among the electors or if nobody gets a majority, then the election goes to the House of Representatives, where each state's delegation gets one vote and they choose between the top three electoral vote getters. If nobody gets a majority by January 20th, the vice president becomes president. And if there's no majority for the VP, the House delegations are excused and only the senators choose the vice president. Most states, as I said, except for Maine and Nebraska, who split some of their electoral votes, give all their electoral votes to the person who wins the popular vote in that state. Over the past 200 years, more than 700 proposals have been introduced in Congress to reform or eliminate the Electoral College. There have been more proposals for constitutional amendments on changing the Electoral College than on any other subject. The only serious move to abolish the Electoral College came in 1968, where a proposal to replace the system with a popular vote system passed easily in the House and was then filibustered in the Senate. The future of the Electoral College remains clear, although it will continue to be a hotly debated issue. Changing our Constitution is difficult for a purpose, and that purpose is so that moderate incremental change can take place as it has. But don't worry, we'll keep an eye on this one for you. And that has been Buzzed History. Buzz History. Wow, Jay. You know, I gotta say, that was my favorite Buzz History of Season 2. Yeah, you say it every week. <laughs> yeah, it means nothing to I said, me. I said of Season 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so... um. One of the things I hear all the time from people on the right, conservatives, is that if the electoral college were to be abolished and we were just to go by the popular vote, uh, a Republican would never win again because, you know, the the two biggest states, California and New York, are, uh, you know, would choose our presidents and the entire country would be governed by the will of those two states. Yeah, the the population centers. Right. So is that something that you agree with? Yeah, but it's not because it's a partisan issue. It's it, it's it's a matter of um, representation and proper right. representation. I, you know, the Constitution was formed and informed by what had happened in England, right? And that wasn't a proper representation of the people, right? And and I think that that speaks to why the Electoral College exists today, and, and that, okay. that every person in in this country, whether they come from a, a big state with a ton of people or a small state with with not as many people, gets to be represented in a way that is fair to them. Excellent. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with that. Now, I was listening to NPR the other day, and they had a whole program about the Electoral College that they were doing, and it was actually very interesting. It turns out 
that over 61% of Americans, according to Gallup polls, want to do away with the Electoral College. Yeah. So, so NPR had people call in and give their opinions on why they no longer thought the Electoral College was useful. Uh-huh. And this is what that sounded like. I actually think it's interesting because some of these people had some serious, uh, you know, I think grievances to yeah. to 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 uh, explore about the the Electoral College. So that is what this sounded like. We asked you what you thought of the system, and well, the consensus was overwhelming in one direction. Hi, this is Carol from Colonial Williamsburg. I think the Electoral College should be retired. Those who put it in place thought it was necessary back then, but now it just needs to go. I'm Susan from Bishop, California. The demographics of our country have hugely changed since the Electoral College was put in place. The big states are just much bigger than the small states now. Small states would still have outsized representation in the Senate, so they wouldn't be forgotten. I'm Don from Madison, Wisconsin. If democracy is one person, one vote, I don't see why we need an electoral college. I'm a Democrat voting in a heavily Republican state. So I feel disenfranchised at the top of the ballot. We don't need the Electoral College anymore. We are one nation, not a bunch of colonies. The one I really agree with is, uh, you know, you hear a lot of conservatives like yourself who live in California um, or New York who say they feel disenfranchised, you know, and that goes both ways. There are a lot of Democrats who live in Mississippi and and feel disenfranchised. But anyway, on this same uh, NPR program, they asked a few questions of uh, Ned Foley, who is a professor and electoral college expert. Uh, Two of the answers he gave, I thought could contribute nicely to this conversation. Here is what the first one sounded like. The electoral college, just quickly break it down for us. What is it and why do we still have it? Well, it goes to states, states' rights and federalism, like some of your uh, uh, commentators said. Uh, Originally, the framers of the Constitution wanted to emphasize uh, that we weren't just one nation, as we sometimes think of ourselves now, but that we were these different states, uh, almost like the countries in Europe. If you imagine the European Union coming together, France and Germany and Britain, uh, back then, they thought Virginia and Massachusetts and New York had that kind of special identity that that we've kind of lost over time. So, you know, uh, some of that re- reiterated what you touched on in your buzz history, Jay. But, you know, I thought this was an interesting thing because what he's saying there is that the Electoral College was specifically created because the founders didn't think of us as one nation. They thought of us as individual states. So if we now think of ourselves as one nation, why do we still need the electoral college, or do we not? Are we should we not be thinking of ourselves as? One I was going to say that I actually disagree yeah. with Ned there. I think that okay. each state does have its own identity. There are state constitutions, okay. there are state legislations, and they do have their own laws that sometimes can supersede the federal law. We see that right. often. There are times for federal law, and there are times for state states' rights. And uh, and I think that that's what makes this country incredibly unique. And it's not the European European Union. It's not you can't really I mean, you can draw the analogies. It's like this. It's like that. But it really is its own thing. It is an experiment of its own kind. And it's like nowhere else on the planet. And uh, I think that's what makes it interesting. And it needs its own system. Excellent. Okay. so, you know, the next answer I thought was interesting was pertaining to why we still have the Electoral College. And uh, this is what, uh, this is that same guy, Ned Foley, and this is what that sounded like. Why do we still have it? 
because it's so hard to amend the Constitution. Um, the Gallup poll, as you said, 60% of Americans now want to get rid of it. That's been as high as 80% over the last 50 years. But to get a constitutional amendment, you need two-thirds of each House of Congress and then three-fourths of the states have to ratify. It's come close a couple of times back in the late 1960s. It came very close in Congress, but just couldn't get over the finish line. Now, you touched upon this again in your buzzed history, but I found, you know, this was interesting to me because I didn't know that it came close to being Mm -hmm. ratified in the 1960s. So I was very surprised by that. I, I was surprised by how long this has been such a controversial issue yeah. in in America because you know again we have a a way especially in the last like couple decades where politics has been so hot it it we have a way of feeling like the the clock just started ticking yeah you know uh-huh. um, especially with Trump like you know a lot of liberals pretend like like. Trump came on the scene and everything started. Things were perfect before. Yeah, well, there was a lot never of people a po- started paying attention to politics right. that didn't pay attention before. Exactly. But that's one thing I didn't know. Um, so I was very surprised by that and how long this has been a contentious issue. So, um, yeah, the, the last thing I'll say is we did an incredible interview uh, this week that I think you guys will really enjoy about this very subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the person we spoke to, Jay, and give us a, 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 a sample of what that interview sounded like. Absolutely. So we had a great interview this week with Emily Conrad, who wrote a very interesting book about the Electoral College, and not just the Electoral College, the, two, the Electoral College in the 2016 election, where eight uh, electoral voters voted against their uh, party line, essentially. They voted either for the op- opponent or for a third party. Um, not only did she s- just discuss their motivation behind that vote, they she got into a lot of personal things about them as human beings and people, and really we discover who these who these people are who are voting on behalf of us, uh, the people. And so it was an amazing interview. We really enjoyed our time with her, yeah. and this is a little clip from that that interview. So um, yes, I'd be happy to share. So in in my book, I interview I include interviews with with eight faithless electors and both Republicans and Democrats. So I interviewed three Republicans. Interestingly, two decided to step down rather than vote faithlessly. And I thought that was extremely interesting. These were people who publicly said I was that they were going to vote faithlessly, got lobbied, got the death threats from everybody. And then they said, hey, um, OK, I, I signed up for more than what I thought. So I'll step down. And they did that after outside pressure. One of them was a very strong. Um, he was a homeschool father a Hispanic homeschool father from uh, Texas, Uh, six children. uh, He started and he was very strong in the liberty movement, so a strong Ron Pauler. And uh, he was also involved in creating a pro-life organization, and and he still dedicates quite a bit of his time to that. So that, that gives a sense um, of kind of a division in the, in the Republican Party that might not have been addressed, this, this ongoing liberty movement. All right. Again, one of my favorite interviews that we've done, and I think you guys will really enjoy it. Uh, what day is that coming out, Jay? Thursday or Friday? So yeah, it'll, it'll come out on Friday. Okay, cool. So um, yeah, guys, that's pretty much all we have for you today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, like we said at the, at the front of the episode, we um, are taking next week off to give thanks. Uh, we encourage everyone to give thanks and give do thanks. it safely. Yes, please. Right? Yep. Um, Jay will hopefully, if you're lucky, be back next week for a buzz history on Thanksgiving. And we'll maybe we'll throw in an additional bonus interview from one of the interviews we banked. Yep. Um, happy holidays to you guys. 
Have a great Thanksgiving. Love your family. Love your country. And uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks, right, Jay? Absolutely. Announcer, take it away. This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now. 